If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville. We record books in a booth. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. Chris Hartram here of the Talking Book Podcast. The Talking Book, Asheville, North Carolina, audiobook recording studio, nonprofit publisher. This podcast is the show where you listen to your favorite authors read from their new books. Some of you may remember that back in the day, I also used to talk to authors a bit before the readings, as people do on podcasts. We would chat, it was fun, and I miss doing it. Well, for those of you that miss it, I'm here to tell you right now stop. Stop missing it. Because today, I'm talking with an author before the reading. Christy Alexander Hallberg is the author of the award-winning novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. It's a fantastic novel we just released in audio, narrated by the incredible Melissa Connell. Listen to this. Desperate to learn the truth about her mother's suicide, to tease fact from family lore, to weave her own personal narrative, Luna embarks on a pilgrimage from her family's farm in the pines of eastern North Carolina to England to search for the man whose music her mother held sacred, Jimmy Page. Searching for Jimmy Page is the first literary novel to feature Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. And I don't know about you, but that's very cool. Anyway, without further ado, here's my conversation with the super talented Christy Alexander Hallberg, and then listen to an excerpt from the audiobook. Searching for Jimmy Page, narrated by Melissa Connell. Hello? Hey, is this Christy? Yes, it is. Hey, how's it going? This is Chris from Talking Book. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? Doing good. I'm glad uh, that we're finally talking here. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. Good to hear from you. Yeah, you too. It's it's been a while. Um, yeah, we're recording as we speak, so we're live. We're live right now. Okay, I won't curse. Yeah, try not to. No, you can curse all you want. Actually, <laughs> this is a this is a curse friendly show. Oh. But wow. um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty edgy. What uh, what? So what? What are you doing right now? Where are you? I'm at home. Because I work from home, I teach at East Carolina University. I teach online because they're actually six hours away on the other end of the state. So I teach English, and I'm grading papers at the moment. Amazing! That's awesome. How long have you worked for Good East Carolina? Yeah, how long have you worked for them? <laughs> uh, Twenty-three years. Whoa, that's incredible! And you went there too, right? I did. I've been teaching online since hmm, 2012, I think. Solely online, that is. Before that, I taught face to face because I was living in Greenville, North Carolina, which is where I'm from. And so I was teaching face-to-face classes and, and sometimes an online class, but I've been strictly online since 2012. And I did go to college there for my BS in English and my MA in English. Oh, wow. And you, uh, you also got an MFA, right? Where did, where did you go for that? Yep. I went to Goddard College in Vermont. Oh, okay. Wow. So how did you find yourself to Asheville? Because I know you, um, from what you said, you're from the eastern part of the state. How did you get over here to WNC? Well, I have a sister who lives in Arden, and she's lived here since the 80s, I think. So I would come to the western part of the state 
fairly frequently to visit her, but I never thought about living here. My husband, Bill, loved the area, though, and he was older than I, and he also taught at ECU, and when he retired, I think that was 2011, 2012, he wanted to move here permanently, so the department was kind enough to let me switch to online teaching so that we could do that. We already had a house here, and we were living here part-time, but we, we made the move to full-time around that period. And unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer shortly thereafter, and he passed away in 2014, and I have just remained. Oh, wow. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's a wild story. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So how did, yeah. You, how did you get into, so that's, that's so interesting. So backtracking here a little bit. So how did you get into writing? Why did you pursue writing when you went to school? Did you, did you grow up around you know, artsy people, or did you come from an artsy home or a readerly, <laughs> writerly home or anything like that? Yeah, kind of. My older brother, Steve, was a drummer, so not a writer, but he was artsy. I mean, he, in the sense that he played music. And so I got a lot of my musical proclivities from him. But my older sister, Martha, did a lot of writing. And so, yeah, I did grow up in an environment where, where there was writing and reading and music. And so ever since I was, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight years old, I thought, I've, I really, I want to pursue this. So it's always been in my, in my blood, I guess. I've always wanted to do it. Hmm. That's interesting that you had a drummer in the family, which obviously leads us to, um, you know, a love of rock and roll, which I know you have. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and so what was the, uh, what was, was there like parallels or kind of like, a, um, what was, what was the journey in terms of, you know, finding out about rock and roll and how that kind of fed into, I guess your writing. Cause eventually you would write, you know, searching for Jimmy page and, and other things yeah. ha- having to do with that. I mean, how did those two things kind of feed into each other, if that makes sense? Well, as I said, I always wanted to write and I came out of the womb, a music lover. So it just sort of makes sense that those two art forms would collide in some way. And I just developed this incredible passion for Led Zeppelin when I was 15. So they began slipping into the stories and poems that I would write because that was what I was really obsessed with. Right. That band, that music, and it was the soundtrack of my youth. And, then, and, then, and there are lots of other bands that I like too, but that one is the one that really got hold of me. And so I, when I began working on a novel, and this novel is like 15, 16 years in the making, I just couldn't get it right. And when I started working on it, I knew that Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin would play a role in it. And they did from the very beginning. However, it was a very different role than it wound up being in the book that finally came out. But apparently, I just I needed to, to get that out of my system. I, I couldn't go on to something else, some other totally different topic until I got this out of my system. Yeah, I know what that's like. Um... In, ter- mm-hmm. in, in terms of, you know, working on something and you almost, and you know, let me know if you agree or disagree, but you almost like, even if when you get really tired of it and you're like, I'm so sick of this, but it, I can't stop <laughs> because I can't, yeah. it's not finished. So I have to finish this or I'll never be able to move on. Well, yeah. And like, I, I mean, I've been working on this, some variation of it for so long. And there were periods where I realized this isn't working. This, this incarnation isn't working, so maybe I should just chuck it and find a whole different subject matter. 
but I couldn't do it. It was like, I don't know. I was just so eaten up with it that I, I had to see it through however it wound up. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, that kind of goes to the next question. I was going to ask you, um, you know, we'd been working on the audiobook for, for a while and, and I was curious what were the, um, and you kind of mentioned it there, but what were the origins of this book? Like, how did this, this book start? I was working on my MFA creative thesis at Goddard. So for the MFA, your, your final thesis has to be, if you're working in creative writing, that is, has to be a full-length book, or it did at Goddard. And so I was working on a novel, and it was actually called When the Owls Cry, which is a line from the song Four Sticks, the Led Zeppelin song Four Sticks, yeah. which, as you know, wound up being a major motif in searching for Jimmy Page. So I was even then playing around with that song. So I was working on that for my creative thesis, and my mother got sick with cancer, and we were very, very close. So she died after, I think I was into my second semester at Goddard, and I promised her that I would finish the degree and I would finish the novel. And it was hard because I was devastated when she died. But I did. I finished it. And I, I realized, though, this is not ready for prime time. This is just, it's not something that needs to go out into the world. And it just sat there on a shelf, as it were. And I didn't really do any writing for a while. I was just dealing with the grief. And one of the things that I did to deal with the grief took place about a year and a half after she died. I, I mean, I was just so in the bell jar. And I thought, I've got to do something to get out of that and rejoin the land of the living. So I need to do something out of character. And lo and behold, I found out about a guitar contest in England that Jimmy Page and Brian May from Queen were judging the summer of 2005. Amazing. And I'd never been out of the country before. I didn't have a passport or anything. But it was like, I've got to go. I have to do this. It's almost like a pilgrimage. And I have to do it alone. So I got a passport and I got a ticket to this thing and I went and my experience was very similar to Luna's experience when she finally does get to England in the novel. And that kind of, I won't go into details about it because I don't want to give away the book, but I did make that journey and it gave me the jump start I needed to kind of begin to write again and begin to heal and all that. But it, it took several more years before I started working on another version of the book, which wound up being a memoir that had a lot to do with that trip I took. And I started working on that after my husband Bill died. So it was like another period of dealing with grief and, and using art to try and work my way out of that. And I finished the memoir. It was about 300 pages. And it was like the same situation. I got I read through it and realized this isn't this isn't ready to go out. This is not the story that I really need to tell. And, you know, that's many, many years in the making now, a lot of effort, and it was hard. It was a bitter pill to swallow to realize I, I didn't need to send that out, and I needed to chuck it and start over again. And so pretty soon afterward, I got the idea for what became Searching for Jimmy Page and stuck with that for another couple of years, wrote it, and here we are. Wow, that's amazing. So how many years total, of course, lots of different iterations, but how many years total did this book kind of come in and out of existence? Wow. Um, I think I started on it in 2003. 
Right. That's amazing. That's a long time. Yeah, that's, long a, time. that's an incredible journey. Yeah, I know what you mean about, you know, without going too far into it, I lost my mother last year to cancer and I know what you mean oh, about. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. But I know that process you're talking about um, where it's like there's a, a period of, as you said, being in the bell jar and, you know, you don't want to do anything. And then after a while, you yeah. kind of try to use the writing or whatever the art is, whatever somebody's mumbo jumbo is to uh, to kind of get out of it and uh, yeah. get past mm -hmm. the grief. And, yeah. yeah, I feel you on that. But, um, yeah, that's so interesting. So, you know, we obviously, you know, I produce a lot of audiobooks with authors and I'm always interested after the fact, um, you know, how an author feels about the experience of, Mm -hmm. You know, writing the book, obviously editing it millions of times. And then what's it like, you know, when you first start hearing somebody narrate the book, you know, was it, was it how you would imagine an audio book being? Was it kind of crazy at first or was it like exactly what you, you thought it was going to be like? Like what, what was that? What was the, what was it like having the audio book done? Well, it's so interesting that you asked me that because I have a podcast of my own right now that came about after the novel came out. It's called uh, Rock is Lit, and it's like the first podcast devoted to rock novels. So I interviewed Melissa Connell, who narrated the mm -hmm. audiobook right. Searching for Jimmy Page. Yeah. I interviewed her for the episode that's going to air this Thursday. And right before you called, I was editing the audio, and we were talking about this very same thing. And I was telling her just how amazing she was and how how weird it was to hear all those audition tapes and all these different voices reading these characters that, and, and these characters are my, my babies and I hear them in a certain way in my head. And it was fascinating to hear other people's interpretations. And, and I told her that initially I considered recording the audiobook myself and I was so glad I didn't do that because I couldn't have done it as well as she did and as well as you guys did producing it and getting it out and everything as I just think she was terrific. She wound up being the perfect person. And we heard, we listened to a lot of audition yeah. recordings and she was just terrific. So the experience has been interesting in that as an author, like I was saying, you do hear these characters voices in your head in a certain way and you have to kind of learn to let go a little bit and realize there's going to be a different interpretation. And, and I just, I think the finished product is just wonderful. Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's a cool thing to, that you mentioned that I feel like a lot of authors, pro, I'm sure they all understand at the end, but maybe I've never heard somebody vocalize it like that. Like um, this idea of kind of letting go, like, you know, you love the finished product, but also there's this period in the beginning where it's like somebody has your babies and you're like, no, 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 it's mm -hmm. not like that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally know what you it's mean. It's hard. It's yeah, hard. Yeah, it really is. And uh, it's hard for so many authors. And, and you are you are completely badass to work with. Um, you know, oh. it's it's always a spectrum, of course. Um, but it's kind of like, it kind of makes me think of, um, I don't know if you agree, but it's kind of like, when somebody even just reads your work, right? And you, mm -hmm. even just and the audience reads your work, you know, somebody might take something away from the writing that that wasn't your intention and that's not what you meant. But it's like once it's out yeah. there, once it's out there and someone has it, like it does take on a life of its own kind of. 
Well, yeah. And as an English teacher, I mean, how many books have I taught where students will say, well, I wonder what the author meant here. And my response, and this is before I had a book out, I, I kind of feel a little closer to the issue now, but I would say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the author intended. It's out there. You're the reader now. You're in a sense kind of taking part in the authorship right. because you're bringing meaning to it. And, and the author's voice is in those pages, not out here someplace whispering in your ear saying, this is what I meant. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's such an interesting process. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear that episode with Melissa. She's fantastic. She did such a good job. And she is. Yeah, we've already, yeah. We, we're really pumped. And I'm going to leave um, a link and some info about that podcast in this episode as well. So people can, people can find that show um, after they hear this. Um, but yeah, fantastic. And I'm going to leave links to the audio book. Um, and... What what what's uh before before we go here what's what's next for you what what are you working on now now that you know the audio book and the book is is out there and making waves and people are listening to it Well a lot of my focus is on the podcast right now and I'm really enjoying doing that but I'm also tinkering around with the next book and because it's just in it's in such early stages right now I'm not going to say anything about it but I I am working on something Okay, awesome. Yeah, you are, you you have to keep me uh keep me updated on that for sure. <laughs> Will do. Yeah, but um but yeah, so we're in you know, we're in Asheville, so um we'll have to hang out sometime. You have to come to the studio when you have uh something new to read and do a reading for us or something for the next episode of the podcast. Oh, damn straight. So I had to get a curse word in. <laughs> you have to. You really have to. So <laughs> a- after this conversation, I'm going to play um, a piece of the audiobook, Melissa reading your book, Searching for Jimmy Page. Um, I think I think we'll play part one, chapter one, because it's amazing. Is there anything you want to say? Yeah. Anything you want to say before the reading starts? No, I just hope people enjoy it. And I, I do want to say that you don't have to be a Led Zeppelin fan to like this book. It's not fan fiction. It's there. Yes, the band and Jimmy Page are a part of the story, but it's it's really about mother-daughter relationships and grief and and using art and myth and lore to shape your personal narrative and it has much more to do with that than it does the band specifically so if you know everybody listening who hates leds up and you can still read the book and and find something in it for you yeah, wise words. That's awesome. And if you hate Led Zeppelin, uh, call me because you might have an, a problem, a psychological problem that you might need to deal with. Give me a call. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Yeah. I think, I don't know if I told you this, but that random anecdote that's, uh, that is um, dumb after that amazing thing you just said. Uh, but when I turned, the day I turned 18, I got my uh, first tattoo, which is uh, funny, very funny in retrospect. It's a, a, a tattoo on my arm that just says rock and roll. And I got it in Gast- cool. Gastonia, North Carolina, and uh, we played uh, Led Zeppelin. The, the tattoo artist let me put whatever I wanted on, and my buddy and I, actually Dave, who, oh, who right. works for Talking Book as well, this is like in 2001 maybe, but uh, yeah, we played Led Zeppelin uh-huh. for that tattoo. So I thought about that uh, moment. That's work, fantastic. I love that. Book. <laughs> All right. Amazing. Well, thank you well, so you guys, much. You guys were great to work with. I mean, I appreciate everything you did to make this happen. Oh, yeah. No problem. It was absolutely our honor and our pleasure. So I'm excited for the next Yay. one, Christy. Oh, well, I'll keep you informed. <laughs> okay. We'll talk soon. And uh, <laughs> yeah, take care. 
You too. All right. Bye-bye. Part One, Four Sticks. Chapter One. The night my great-grandfather died, frigid air howled through the pines and swirled down the chimney of his shack near our fallow tobacco fields in eastern North Carolina. My grandmother and I kept vigil at his bedside, a battery-operated space heater oscillating at our feet, kerosene lamps lofting shadows on the walls. He'd refused to install electricity and insisted the fireplace remain unlit at night. He claimed spirits talked to him through the flu at the witching hour. So did birds, especially owls. He said they were good omens, unless they flew inside your house. Owl in the house means death's coming, he'd say. I lulled my head against the wall, bare like all the others. No family portraits or prosaic artwork or thumbtacked greeting cards with snapshots of my great-grandfather's progeny tucked inside. The shack was cluttered with clothes and other debris from a fading life, but the walls were naked. He preferred it that way, no memories or illusions, except the ones that came to him at night. At the stroke of twelve, he wrapped his knotty fingers around my wrist and squeezed. Can you hear it? he asked, his voice like winter wind crackling through kindling. An icy shiver ran through me. He had not spoken since that balmy summer night when I was nine years old, when the river ran dry and the pines began to cry. The night my mother committed suicide. An abomination, he'd call it. A sin against providence. He'd sat expressionless in his rocking chair while Grandma delivered the news. His face bathed in candlelight, then hobbled into the woods and chanted my mother's name, like an incantation, a prayer for deliverance. Then he'd spoken no more. I inched closer to him, close enough to smell the implacable stench of the dying. Hear what? I asked timorously. Owls, he said, like music. My body fluttered as if it were falling out of oblivion, slowly, unwittingly, the air prickly and thin. Long ago, I'd heard a song about owls crying in the night. The singers wail primeval, in sync with marauding guitar licks the beat like jungle drums. I felt them vibrating inside me just then, like a distant echo from another life, one that still included my mother. Can you hear the music? He persisted, struggling to raise his head. Grandma implored me with her eyes. I, I can hear it, Granddaddy. He gave a shuddering laugh. <laughs> Ain't in your head, girl. Where then? I waited watching his chest rise and fall, his fitful breaths grow shallow, the caesura between life and death. It's in your soul, he finally said. He nudged his Bible beside him, giving voice to verse, Ecclesiastes 6.10, that which hath been is named already. He dropped my arm and exhaled, his face pallid and drawn. Grandma and I stood over him, bearing witness, sleep pelting the windows. That song about the owls, its searing guitar haunting me, 
like fragments of memory I'd buried with my childhood. Grainy images of my mother in her yellow bedroom with her lavender incense and votive candles. Her black and white photograph of a rock star standing on a stage at Kizar Stadium in 1973, dressed all in white, lips pursed, unruly dark hair framing a beautific face, guitar strapped over his shoulder, arms spread wide, as if he were awaiting crucifixion. The two of them were intertwined in my mind's eye, like ashes wafting in a summer wind, waiting for water to receive them. I was born of water and moonlight, and of her and of him. Grandma stopped the clock on the mantel to mark the moment of my great-grandfather's passing, as if halting time held power, then, forever, now. She handed me a flashlight, then draped her overcoat around me, the scent of Jurgen's lotion and talcum powder lingering in the fabric. Go on home, honey, she said. I shouldn't have brought you here. You didn't, I said faintly. I'd followed her from our farmhouse at dusk, trudged the quarter mile past the barn and hog pen, through the woods, where the footpath ended, as if I'd heard my great-grandfather's keening call. Go home, Grandma said, prodding me toward the door. I'll be along directly. I wrenched away from her and stared at my great-grandfather the withered shell that remained, searching for some part of him that still looked vital, the outline of his body beneath the quilt, legs splayed as if the cat he used to own were nestled between them, his arm dangling over the side of the bed. Grandma tucked it underneath the quilt her mother had made, tattered and yellowed with age, the same quilt that had covered her while she lay dying over a half a century before cancer ravaging her breast, flies swarming the window screens, attracted by the feeder of rotting flesh, all because her husband had believed he could heal her with ritual and prayer. I harbor a picture of that night in my mind's eye, my great-grandmother's bewildered stare, her mouth a perfect O, a last word half-spoken, an oracle undelivered. Now he was dead his jaw unhinged, spittle on his grizzled chin, his only child by his side, the daughter whom he only recognized after she'd tell him her name, the name he'd given her seventy years ago. Do like I say, Grandma said sternly. I stood there breathless, my great-grandfather's milky eyes, fixed and dilated, seeing nothing, seeing everything boring into mine. Grandma cupped my chin in her hand. Don't look back, she said with urgency in her voice. I never had before, not after my mother died. Like my great-grandfather, I had not spoken her name since. I had not heard her voice in a brooding summer rain, or felt her hand clasping mine in a sibylline dream, or seen her face in the shadow of a stealthy hunter's moon. I had erased her, and the sainted sinner who conjured music and magic from an electric guitar. His photograph in my mother's bedroom, her unfaithful talisman. I'd never looked back, never. Until that winter's night in February 1988, when I was 18 years old, the past summoned like fire in my great-grandfather's shack, 
phantom owls crying in the night. It was inevitable. Perhaps it was even providence. Now would return me to then. The tale demanded to be told. All right, thanks so much for listening, folks. Go and get the audiobook right now on Audible, iTunes. Go to thetalkingbook.org. I'll leave links in the show notes. Thanks so much to Christy Hallberg for coming on the show, working with The Talking Book. Um, it was super fun to make this audiobook with Melissa Connell, the narrator. Christy is also the host of Rock is Lit, a podcast about rock novels, which is badass, uh, from Pantheon Podcast Network. Thanks as well to Melissa Connell for narrating the book and Dave Burr for editing this episode. Keegan Gramois, Holler Boy, Scott McClanahan, Chris Oxy for the music. Uh, contact us at thetalkingbook.org. We're in Asheville. I'm sitting here right now in Asheville. My name's Chris Hartram. Rock on, everybody. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy. Chasing sister squares I was lit Before I knew that you were there Like an angel Who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit Before I knew The storm was past